Welcome to episode three of the Briona Society podcast. My name is Jay Dondi. I'm the president of the Briona Society. And today I'm excited to bring you a discussion with addiction recovery advocate, Tom Wolfe, who many of you may recognize from Michael Schellenberger's excellent book, San Francisco. Tom is uniquely qualified to speak about the twin homelessness and drug epidemics ravaging San Francisco, which have claimed more than a thousand lives over the last two years alone. After a debilitating surgery, he became addicted to painkillers, eventually spiraling into homelessness, harder drug use, and multiple brushes with the law, until he found a path to recovery. Armed with this firsthand experience, Tom is unafraid to speak truth to power about what's really happening in places like the Tenderloin. I learned a lot in this conversation, including who actually controls the drug trade and how they operate, what harm reduction activists privately say about drug use when they're not on camera, and why San Francisco is not seeing a return on the hundreds of millions of dollars we annually sink into our homeless industrial complex. Whatever your preconceived notions on homelessness and drug addiction may be, whether you favor stricter or more lenient policies, I guarantee that you will see things in a whole new light after hearing what Tom has to say. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this conversation with Tom Wolf. Tom Wolf, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you. I personally am a big fan, and I can tell you that many of the Briona Society leads were also very excited when I told them that we were going to have you as a guest. So welcome, and we're excited to talk to you. Well, thanks, Jay. It's great to be here. And you know, I'm happy to tell my story and kind of share my views on San Francisco with anyone that's willing to hear it. Absolutely. Couldn't have said it better myself. So your name is synonymous in San Francisco with advocacy for recovery and for what many people, myself included, see as common sense solutions to the crises that we're facing with drugs and homelessness. But for the very few of our listeners who might not know you, maybe we could start with you just telling us a little bit about your personal story and how you came to be involved in the work that you're doing now. Well, yeah, sure. So I come from just kind of a regular background. I'm a San Francisco native. I was born and raised between San Francisco and Daly City. So I was always right here and you know, married, two kids. You know, I was a homeowner. I worked for the city and county of San Francisco as a child support officer. And in early 2015, I had surgery on my foot where they had to actually break my foot and insert two titanium screws in it and reset it. And when they did that, they sent me home with a 30-day supply of 10 milligram oxycodone tablets for the pain. And I didn't use those pills as directed. I started abusing them. I still remember to this day, you know, instead of taking one pill every four hours, I started taking two pills. And then pretty soon I took three pills all at once. And that's when I kind of hit that euphoria where I was not in any pain and I was high as a kite. And all my problems melted away. Any mar- marital problems I was having, any you know financial problems I was having, all of that stuff just went. All the stress from work, it just was gone for like three hours. That that's I wanted to just continue feeling that way. Let's put it that way. At first, was it a gradual transition into abusing the oxycodone, or was it at first? I assume you were probably in a lot of pain from the surgery and were using it as directed, or was it just kind of jumping right into it? You know, it was kind of gradual, I guess you could say. So, you know, one pill wasn't doing it for me. And yes, I was in tremendous pain. I was in a boot and I had my foot all wrapped up and it was in a walking boot and I was on crutches. And eventually I had one of those kind of, you know, those wheelie things that you kneel on and you wheel around with (laughs) for mobility. And it was super uncomfortable. It was a pain. It was a pain in the ass. 
I started taking more pills to make it feel better. And it did make it feel better. And then whereas the supply was supposed to last me a month, after about a week, I was starting to run low. So I started to try to taper myself off the pills, take two, take one. And I went into withdrawal or what we know as being dope sick. I got dope sick. I got the sweats. I got the chills at the same time. You know, the shakes. I was having stomach issues. And the main thing is that I was already obsessing over the drug itself. And what's amazing to me is how quickly all of that really happened. That happened like in the span of like 10 days. I was in withdrawal already from the pills because I was taking too much of it. And instead of just kind of fighting through those withdrawals, I you know, started looking on the computer because I was obsessing about it on the internet where I could buy pills on the street in San Francisco. And at the same time, I was trying to call my doctor to get a refill. And of course, they would not give me a refill. Then I stumbled upon YouTube. And on YouTube, they had several different references and videos to a place called Pill Hill in San Francisco, which is Golden Gate and Leavenworth Streets in the Tenderloin. I worked up the courage because I wasn't feeling good and I was almost out of pills. And I drove down there with my boot and all on my foot. I got out of the car and sure enough, there were five or six guys standing on the corner with a variety of different opioids that they were willing to sell me all the way from from Percocets all the way to 80 milligram oxycodone tablets. And mind you, this was in 2015 and the drug market has completely changed since then. And we'll talk about that. But at the time, there were five or six, six different guys on the corner selling. And I started purchasing 30 milligram oxycodone pills for $30 a piece. That's kind of how I started my journey into addiction, which eventually led me to homelessness. Because over time, my addiction you know, progressed. And addiction itself is a disease and it's a progressive disease. So you know, as your tolerance builds up to the drug, you start to use more and more and more. And over the next two years, my addiction grew. And, and mind you, I was functioning. I had gone back to work and everything after a few months. And at the peak of my addiction, I was using 560 milligrams of oxycodone every single day. So I was buying seven 80 milligram tablets on the street at 30 to $35 a piece. So I was spending 210 to 250 bucks a day on my habit. And throughout this time, what was your internal narrative? What were you telling yourself? Were you already aware that you had a problem or was there an a sense of denial where, oh, it's just a thing, I can manage it, I'll eventually grow out of it, et cetera, et cetera. So no, I knew I had a problem. You know, in retrospect now in recovery, I look back and it's like, I absolutely knew I had a problem, but I thought I could manage the problem. I thought that I could do this without my wife finding out, without my kids knowing about it, without it bankrupting me. I thought I could manage. I thought I had control over the situation. Now, denial is a big thing in addiction, but and that's true. And I had some denial issues later on, especially when I was out on the street homeless. But the denial really was was in effect with my wife. She was in complete denial over my addiction. And that's a common thing that many families will tell you is that they don't want to believe that their husband or father or son or daughter has become addicted to drugs. So they just kind of try to pretend that it's not a problem. And that's kind of what happened until... I just stopped going to work one day and I basically quit my job and I didn't even tell my wife. So I was hiding that from her too. The debts were piling up. The bills were piling up. They were going unpaid because I was using whatever money I had to buy drugs. I stopped paying the mortgage. I called my bank and said I was having financial problems. And I told them I wanted to modify my loan. And when you do that, it kind of puts your mortgage into kind of a limbo status while you go through this process. So I went many months without paying my mortgage 
all without my wife's knowledge, which is crazy. And that's something I had to own in recovery and make amends for in recovery. That was tough. And it's not easy to talk about, but it is what it is. And there's a lot of people like me, which is what I found out. I'm not the only guy that this happened to. There are so many people out there that had a home that lost it or had a family that lost it. Uh, had a job that lost it because of drugs. And that's something that doesn't get talked about enough. And it actually gets downplayed as being a primary driver of homelessness. And I'm, I'm here to tell you all that it should not be downplayed, that it is a primary factor for so many people. It's something that gets lost in the conversation when activists go out and, or volunteers go out and do homeless outreach. And they count the homeless people, the point in time report, and they'll say, what's the primary reason for your homelessness? And they'll say, job loss. And then they stop right there and check the box for job loss, but nobody asks them, how did you end up losing your job? The answer to that for a lot of them is going to be, well, I had a drug problem and I couldn't make it to work on time and eventually they fired me. I mean, we'll dive into the point in time count later on. I guess on this note, how did you end up actually on the street and homeless? So that's kind of a harrowing story. You know, one day, so basically my wife found out what was going on. I mean, I, she obviously suspected it. I mean, why was there no money in the bank account? Why were we always overdrawn? She knew something was wrong, right? But a denial is strong. And we had two small kids in the home. She's busy and she's working. She found out because we got a foreclosure notice in the mail on our house. And I had been intercepting the mail, but I didn't that day. I don't remember why, if I was out getting drugs or passed out or what. And she did. And she got this foreclosure notice and the shit hit the fan. And at that point, you know, my wife pretty much cut me off from most of the money and I didn't have enough money to continue spending $210 a day on drugs, pills. So I made the fateful decision to walk a block down to Golden Gate and Hyde and bought heroin, an eighth of a gram of heroin, which cost me only $10. And I started using heroin intravenously at that point. That was in 2017. And that's when I kind of made the transition to the harder drugs. And that's when my life really spiraled out of control. Over the next months, I continued to use intravenously at home. I was hiding it from my wife and kids. I was shooting up in the garage when they weren't, when they weren't around. They were wondering why is dad always kind of asleep on the couch because I was shooting up drugs, shooting up heroin. So the levee broke one night. We were sleeping. I woke up at two in the morning because I was in withdrawal. I didn't have any money. So I went into my wife's purse. She had some cash in there, a few hundred dollars that I think her mom had given her to buy groceries. I took that money. I took the minivan, my family car, drove down to the Tenderloin, and I didn't come home for 11 days. Wow. I went on an 11-day bender in the TL, just buying dope, shooting dope, smoking crack, hanging out, didn't take a shower for 11 days. And it wasn't until my wife had filed a missing persons report on me that the cops came and found me on day 11. They knocked on my window of my car and I opened the door and I had all this foil and straws and needles in the car and everything. And they, uh, they said, Hey, are you Tom Wolf? And I said, yeah. They said, you know, your wife's freaking out, man. Cause you've been gone. You need to go home. What was crazy is they didn't arrest me. Okay. I, I had I had the drug paraphernalia everywhere and they didn't arrest me. They actually just told me to start my car up and go home and I did. And I drove home and when I I was deathly afraid. And when I walked in the door, my wife was standing there with a packed bag saying, I got you a bed at a drug treatment facility, or you can get out. It's your choice. And I was in withdrawal at that moment from heroin and I opted to leave. 
that was the day I became homeless. That was in January of 2018. So that was January of 2018. And then how long were you on the street for in total? Six months. I was on, I lived on pretty much in the doorway on the 300 block of Golden Gate Avenue between Hyde and Larkin, uh, right next to that subway and Phil's Coffee over there for uh, on pretty much sleeping on a piece of cardboard if I could find one. I didn't even have a tent or anything. I was just out there on the street. I had a jacket, a hoodie, beanie cap, pair of jeans, and that's how I rolled for six <laughs> months out there. And eventually the police did arrest you. They did because, you know, I, I fell into the whole lifestyle out there in mm-hmm. the tenderloin. You know, I needed to support my drug habit. So the first thing I did is I signed up for welfare, for general assistance, okay, mm-hmm. to get money and food stamps. And I was getting those. You know, that money would last me only about 10 days of the month. So the rest of the time I had to do my hustle like everybody else out on the street has. They all have a hustle. Everybody has a hustle. So it's not just that there's like drug addicts sitting around getting a high in the tenderloin. There's a whole hustle, like an underground economy that exists in the tenderloin and now South of Market as well, and the Mission District now too. Where you know, you boost, you go to Walgreens and Shoplift, you go to Rite Aid or which is closed now, you go to Target at the Metreon and, and Boost, Ross out on Market Street and Boost. And so that's what I would do to support my habit. And then one day when I was sitting out there, one of the drug dealers walked up to me and said, hey, Tom, quieres trabajo? You want to work? And I said, okay. And he said, here, hold this. And he handed me a gym sock that was filled with a bunch of bindles of heroin, crack cocaine, and baggies of meth. And he said, here, hold this. And then he handed me a dime of heroin as payment. I started holding it. And that's a common thing for people on the street to do is they end up holding for the hunter and drug dealers out there. And they get paid in drugs so that I found a way to support my drug habit, basically. And if you're deemed to be trustworthy by the dealers, you can start holding for more than one dealer. And because I wasn't like running off with his stash or pinching his stash, pretty soon other dealers started to trust me. And I started holding for six different dealers all at the same time. And so I was actually making plenty of drugs. I don't want to say money. I was making drugs. They were (laughs) paying me in crack and heroin and later on fentanyl. And that's how I supported my habit. And that's also how I got caught up with law enforcement. I'll never forget it. It was Sunday, April 29th, 2018. I was on the street on a Sunday afternoon holding for six different dealers at the same time. So I had six gym socks inside my jacket. And the police had been doing surveillance from a parking garage up on the top of a parking garage of the block all morning. And they had honed in on me and figured that I was the guy that had all the drugs. And so they did a sting. And when they do a sting, you know it's bad when the cops come driving up the wrong way on a one-way street. Right. That's what happened on Golden Gate Avenue. And we all scattered. And I remember running around the corner on Hyde, running down towards McAllister. And at the time, there was a bus stop there for the 19 Polk. And I was waiting at the bus stop shelter for the bus to come. And I could see it coming down the hill. So it was coming down Hyde, and I was like, okay, cool. I'm going to hop on the bus, go around you know, for an hour, and then I'll come back and bring everybody's drugs back. And as I'm waiting, I turn around, and an unmarked police car pulls up, and two cops jump out, and they're like, we got them, and they got me with all the drugs. And I was holding about four and a half ounces of heroin, crack, and meth at the time. And that was my first time in my life. I was 48 years old. That was the first time in my life I'd ever been arrested, uh, ever, and I was summarily taken to jail. I go to jail. They book me in jail. I thought I was, you know, if you watch The Wire, you get busted, you know, oh, you're going to go to prison. <laughs> well, you know, the things have changed, man. So I, I spent 16 hours in jail, 
somebody came and met with me and had me sign what they call a stay away order, where uh, which is an agreement from the court that I would stay 150 yards in a circle away from the 300 block of Golden Gate Avenue. And they released me on my own recognizance with no bail right back out to the street. That proceeded to happen five more times after that in the span of three months. What you just described sounds very different than what I think the layperson sees when they go down to or walk through, drive through the Tenderloin. It looks like chaos. It looks totally disorganized. And from what you just said, it actually seems like there's quite a bit of organization. It's like its own microcosm, its own economy. Very different than what you'd see if you were just looking at it from the outside. Right. And so here's the thing. There is chaos, but there is an operating ecosystem within that chaos. You have a very highly, uh, it's a, you have an organized drug dealing ring, and there's different factions of this ring out there selling drugs. Okay, so they all work together but separately, but they're all they all know each other. They're all while they all work for different distributors, they all have each other's back. So if somebody robs one drug dealer on the street, twenty all twenty of them around the corner will come and defend that one drug dealer, right? So it is an organized network, and they have rules within that network too of you know, you can't use your own product. If you do, you get kicked out of the ring, things like that. And while there is chaos all around them in that you have a bunch of people that are homeless struggling with addiction around them, all those people that are homeless struggling with addiction also have some kind of hustle going on within that chaos to maintain or support their drug addiction. So as chaotic as it looks to you, there's actually an ecosystem and an economy that's happening right there, right before our eyes. And unless you're part of it, you don't really see it. So Six times a charm, I suppose. You were arrested five more times after that first arrest. And that sixth time, something changed? Well, yeah. So the fifth time I got arrested. So each time I got arrested, I I stayed in jail for a day or two. And then I was released on OR every single time. They never posted bail or made bail on me or anything. They would just release me, release me. And it's worth mentioning that every time I was released, I was released back into homelessness. And that's a problem that we have to address in the city. But it's not just here. That's pretty much everywhere where if you're homeless, you commit a crime. It's a low-level nonviolent crime. They release you on your own recognizance or with very low bail and you get out and you're just homeless all over again. And so the cycle just starts all over again. And that's something that we we as a city and as a community, as a state, need to work on addressing and creating resources, more resources for people that are homeless that end up in the criminal justice system. But with that said, yes, I was arrested a total of five more times. Each time, it was a day or two until the, the last couple of times. The fourth time I got arrested, I spent like four days in jail. The fifth time I was arrested, I spent four or five days in jail. And they, when they released me, they put an ankle monitor on me. And they sent me out with an ankle monitor, thinking that that would work. It would be a deterrent. Well, it wasn't. I lasted a grand total of 24 hours with the ankle monitor before I got arrested (laughs) again. And let me tell you, those ankle monitors work because I had gone into the Tenderloin, back to my spot. I was standing on Eddie and Hyde within the 150-yard radius of my stay-away order. And the sheriffs actually found me on GPS and they came up to me and they said, are you Wolf? And I said, yeah. I said, yep, you're under arrest for violating your stay away order. They took me away to jail and, you know, I was, I was holding, well, I wasn't holding, I was watching a bag of drugs in front of me. And that's that whole Twitter, you know, that says, you know, I was arrested with a bag of drugs at my feet. 
you know, and, and, you know, people on the hard left that don't like me to criticize me say that I was dealing drugs. Well, no, I was actually standing there watching the drugs for the dealer trying to get paid in drugs so I could keep going. Right. Anyway, so I get busted. I go to county and this time they tell me that I caught too many cases too close together and they ended up transferring me out to the main jail in San Bruno and I spent about three months in custody. And what was different about that experience? I mean, obviously you were in custody for a long period of time, probably had no or less access to drugs than you otherwise would have had in the tenderloin. Is that where your your road to recovery began? Yeah. So because they weren't going to let me out in four or five days and they were transferring me to general population, to gen pop, they gave me medically assisted treatment in jail, which is something all jails should be doing. They actually gave me buprenorphine or Suboxone in jail to help me with the withdrawals that I was in. So I, I remember they when they book you into jail, they put you in the tank. And then from the tank, they take you and put you into the medical pod for 72 hours. And then they transfer you either upstairs to the now closed jail upstairs on the top of 850 Bryant, or they transfer you out to San Bruno Jail, which is behind Skyline College in San Bruno. That's actually the San Francisco main county jail out there. And so they gave me buprenorphine, which is great because I was in full-blown withdrawal because when I was out on the street, I had already started transitioning over to fentanyl because fentanyl was hitting the streets hard in 2018 already. And that drug worked. It stopped my physical withdrawals. Basically, they detoxed me in county jail. And then from there, even though there were a few drugs floating around county jail, it wasn't like the way they make it out to be that like there's all these people smoking meth and weed in jail. It's more like somebody smuggled some Suboxone in their butt into jail. <laughs> they crush it up and sell it to somebody for some top ramens from your commissary and you can snort it and get high. That's pretty much the extent of the drugs that were in San Francisco County Jail. <laughs> so <laughs> I never did that. No, thank you. I'm cool. Right. <laughs> I, I, even I have my standards, man, you know? So <laughs> anyway, so yeah, that's kind of what got me clean. I wouldn't say there's any recovery in jail. There's no recovery in jail, but I got clean in jail. And then, you know, after three months, they lowered my bail down, um, but it still, nobody would bail me out. My family had, you know, said they were practicing what they call in recovery separation with love and that they love me. They want me to be okay, but they also felt that jail was probably the best place for me at that very moment. So I picked up the phone one day and I called my brother who I hadn't talked to in a year because we were estranged because of the shit that I had pulled in my addiction. And I said, I need help. And he says, I'll tell you what, I'll bail you out if you promise to go to rehab. And I said, okay. So sure enough, a couple of days later, I get a call to, to roll up because I'd been bailed out. And he kept his word. He bailed me out. And he drove me to the Salvation Army ARC over on 26th and Valencia. That's where I started my journey in recovery, was at that place. And that was end of 2018? Yeah, that was in September of 2018. So I went in there and it was a six-month inpatient program. So I stayed there until like the end of February of 2018 when I completed the program. What does a person do after they leave the recovery program? Well, that's a great question. What do they do? And that's where there's a huge gap in services in San Francisco in general in regards to drug treatment. And we definitely have to talk about drug treatment and the current approach in San Francisco. But so look, this was a six month inpatient program. It was free. I want to stress that it didn't cost anything because the Salvation Army 
can't get government grants to run their programs because they're abstinence-based based programs. So everything's on private donations. That program housed me, clothed me, fed me, gave me 12-step faith-based counseling, and put me on the road to recovery. And the main thing that it did is it ended my homelessness. And once you complete that program, you have an option to sign up with the, sign on with them for another six months and continue to live in that program. Or, you know, if you have a family to go back to, you can go back to your family. Or if you have the means, you can try to do something else or you can just leave and go back to the street, which is what a lot of people end up doing too, unfortunately. For me, fortunately, that six months gave me an opportunity to formulate a plan. I also had a little bit of help from my family at that point because they were talking to me again. And I got a job and I was able to rent a shared room in a sober living house here in San Francisco. And so I went to a sober living home where the one requirement to live in this house is that everybody has to be in recovery. And I went to go live there after that. And that really helped me transition back to life. Let's put it that way. Well, thank you for sharing that story. I think that this is a great place to maybe zoom out a little bit and ask what options are available to a person who is experiencing homelessness or drug addiction or mental illness, and they want to find a way out of that situation. So even even really at the very baseline level where I just want to find a place to sleep tonight, is it possible to get a shelter bed in San Francisco? What kind of monetary benefits can I receive? Really, if, if you're just looking to relieve the acute situation of how do I get out of off the street tonight? What could I do if I suddenly found myself homeless? Wow, that's a great question. And it's going to be really complicated and hard and frustrating to answer for you. So here's the reality. The reality is, is that we have several navigation centers in San Francisco. The number of beds, shelter beds available in San Francisco are equal to about 30 to 40% of the homeless population in San Francisco. So we don't have enough beds to house everybody anyway, right? If you wanted one of those beds, you would have to go to one of several places. You could either go to the Tenderloin Center down at UN Plaza and find out if they have a bed available, or you could walk directly to one of the shelters themselves on your own to see if there's a bed available. Or if you're lucky enough, somebody on the street will do outreach to you and start the process of you trying to get into a shelter bed that day. Okay. If you want drug rehab and you're on the street, you're fresh on the street. Okay. Let's say like me, let's say I've been on the street for six months and I, I woke up one day and I decided, nope, I don't want fentanyl anymore. I'm going to go to rehab, which is not such an easy decision to make as people make it out to be for obvious reasons. You would have to go line up at Health Right 360 on Van Ness as early as seven o'clock in the morning to do their intake for detox and hope that they have a bed available. Or you can go to the Department of Public Health intake offices, I think that's on 9th Street, 9th and Howard, and wait there to see if you can get in or start the process of getting into a detox bed. Now, in order to get into detox or into drug treatment in San Francisco, the very first thing, what do you think the very first thing is that you need? A driver's license? Correct. You need ID to get in. If you don't have an ID, which most people on the street do not have, you can't get into drug treatment. So in order to even start the process of going to detox or drug treatment, you have to figure out a way to get a California ID or a driver's license first. And in order to get a California driver's license or ID, what do you need to get that? You need a birth certificate. Right. And let's say you're from Ohio and you're out homeless here on the street. Now you got to figure out a way to have somebody help you to get in touch with Ohio to get you a birth certificate. And that takes like two weeks <laughs> to get. 
And then when you get that, then you can fill out the application at the DMV for your California ID with your birth certificate. And you can probably get a waiver for the fee. And then you have to wait another two weeks or three weeks to get your ID. And then when you have your ID, then you can go and sign up for detox and rehab. And when they do that, though, they don't just say, okay, you're in, man. You can start detoxing. They need to know your medical history. So you have to tell them where you've been to. Have you been to the hospital? Which hospital? Is it San Francisco General? Or, oh, no, I'm from San Jose. So, oh, it's a hospital in San Jose. Which hospital is that? Well, I don't know. Well, then they have to start calling around and trying to find your medical information. They need your medical history before you can get in. So while the Department of Public Health sits there at hearing after hearing about treatment on demand in San Francisco at the Board of Supervisors saying that they actually have real treatment on demand, in reality is that even in a perfect scenario, when you have all that stuff, if you're super lucky and you're super ready to go and you've got everything, you might, like small chance that you can get in that same day. At a minimum, it would take you six days. More likely, it takes you 45 to 47, 48 days to get into treatment because that's how long it takes to process all that stuff. And so it's not just like I can just walk in and say, hey, I'm ready for detox. And they're like, okay, go lie down over there, man. And we're going to start you on methadone or buprenorphine to get you uh, detoxed from fentanyl. doesn't work like that. You got to have all those other pieces first in place. So if you look statistically at the number of people entering drug treatment in San Francisco over the last six years between 2015 and 2021, people entering treatment has actually declined in the city. And then if you look at that data next to how many actual treatment beds are available in San Francisco, the Department of Public Health sanctions only a grand total of 500 beds for at least 22,000 drug users that are in San Francisco. And the number is probably way higher than that. And those beds aren't even all just for detox and rehab. Only 57 of those beds are for detox. So we have 57 detox beds in all of San Francisco for 22,000 people at least that are using drugs. And there's at least four to 8,000 people on the street right now that are actually unhoused, sleeping rough on the concrete using fentanyl. Hmm. And if all of them decided one day, I want to go to treatment, we wouldn't be able to help them. We would not be able to service them at all. So what is the Department of Public Health's response to that? Well, we're going to spend $569 million on deliverables, substance use services, not substance use treatment. Okay. They're going to start giving out needles, foil, straws, pipes, and then they're going to start creating places like the Tenderloin Center, which is a de facto supervised consumption site. They're going to open wellness hubs now in the city, which are de facto supervised consumption sites, all while only increasing drug treatment beds by 120 over the next three years. And mind you, do you know how much money the Department of Public Health in San Francisco spends on drug treatment beds in San Francisco right now? They spend $75 million a year for 500 beds. Hmm. I mean, it's, it's, I can't even use the word. I mean, I, I want to use profanity, but it, I'm going to. It's f-ing insane, okay, <laughs> that they're spending $600 million a year for substance use services, $75 million for treatment, and there's no damn beds. And there's no way, easy way to get into treatment. And all they're doing is they're just stretching out people's addictions. And yes, they're saving lives in the short term by giving naloxone, you know, and reversing overdoses. And people are using safer. I'm not even necessarily so much against safe consumption sites. I'm kind of neutral about the whole thing. My, my point is, is it's an egregious waste of money 
number one, they're not putting the focus in the right place and they're not removing the right barriers to get people to access treatment. And so nobody gets clean as a result, man. And that's where we're at today. I'm just trying to process everything you said because it's so fascinating. First of all, it sounds like San Francisco makes it incredibly easy to continue using drugs on the street. Uh, Maybe not easy, that's not the right word, but they definitely facilitate a person's ability to continue their own drug addiction on the street and at the same time make it wildly difficult and force you to jump through so many bureaucratic hoops if you wanted to actually get treatment. The other thing that was very surprising to hear you say was that I think that the political discourse in San Francisco is often framed as being between people who want a more aggressive approach to compel drug addicted people on the street into treatment versus folks who say, well, no, we just need to have more services available and more money for beds and recovery. And what I heard from you is that actually there isn't even that much of a constituency advocating for having more money for those recovery beds and those programs. It's almost like the quote unquote harm reduction crowd is really just advocating for continuing to supply drug paraphernalia and services on the street and not even paying attention to voluntary forms of treatment and recovery. I don't know if I have all that right, but that's sort of what I took from what you just said. That is correct. So let me put it this way. I spoke to the CEO of San Francisco's preferred addiction treatment provider in San Francisco recently. And that person, I will not name that person, but that person told me, and I quote, there are 17 million people struggling with addiction in the United States. None of them want to get clean. So we should just support them. (laughs) That was that person's words, not mine. Now I'll say this. So there's, there's two factions in San Francisco. You're right. There's the harm reduction folks. And then there's kind of this growing group of people that we kind of, we don't really have a name for ourselves. I mean, we're kind of like the recovery first folks that want to approach this from a, from a viewpoint of recovery. And many of us are in recovery ourselves from addiction. And while there's also some harm reduction folks that are in recovery too. And what's interesting is that some of those harm reduction folks in recovery are also abstinent from all drugs like I am. And they got clean using like 12 step abstinence based treatment like I did. So it's really kind of puzzling to me when some of those individuals really promote kind of these harm reduction services and even advocate for legalization of drugs and a safe supply of of these drugs, thinking somehow that that's going to solve the crisis. What I always tell them when they come at me with that is that we need safe supply, we need to legalize drugs. And I always just say to them, so have you guys been down to Mexico recently to talk to the leaders of the Sinaloa cartel? <laughs> are, they, are they in agreement with you? Are they, are they planning to just take their ball and go home? Or are they going to come up with a drug that's far stronger and worse and cheaper than fentanyl and distribute that on the street? Because that is exactly what they're going to do. So it's really short-sighted and it's puzzling and it's frustrating. And at the same time, I get bullied a lot. I get, you know, I'm really outspoken on Twitter. I'm kind of like the voice of recovery in San Francisco, I guess you could say, for a lot of people. And I try to be nuanced and fair and and down the middle on this issue. I really try to stay like down the middle on this issue. I'm a moderate anyway, you know, and just say, look, really, at the end of the day, 
if you want to save lives, if you want to reduce the open drug scenes, if you want to reduce the drug dealing, then you have to have less people using drugs. And the way you do that is that you incentivize and get folks into drug treatment. And there's a subset of those people on the street that require intervention, period. And I'm one of those people. I needed intervention. I had to get locked up, man, before I got clean. And that's just the reality of the situation. And so this whole thing about, oh, well, the Tenderloin Center and it serves a hundred thousand. It served a hundred thousand, you know, visits since we've opened, and it's great and all that. Nah, man. You know what people on the street see the Tenderloin Center as? Is they see it as two things. They see it as a place where I can go get some free, shit, okay, like food, clothing, blankets, sleeping bag, tent, and where I can go shoot dope in the courtyard, and nobody's going to mess with me. That's how it's viewed. I'm just saying that's how it is viewed as a fentanyl lounge. And what's really frustrating for me is that the folks that run the Tenderloin Center and our local leaders and even all the way up to our state senator would refuse to publicly acknowledge that the Tenderloin Center is a supervised consumption site when it absolutely is one. So there's this all this ambiguity and they why are you trying to hide it? Why haven't you engaged the public on this? Why is it all kind of happening like all of a sudden they just started allowing drug use there and and there was no public interaction with the community and no you know, they didn't have any community meetings about it or anything. They just started doing it. They just made that arbitrary decision. And now they want to open wellness hubs, up to six of them through the city, that are going to be the same thing, just smaller versions of the same thing, without any public discourse. It's crazy that they get to make those arbitrary decisions. And what's frustrating is that the harm reduction crowd, they've got all the money, man. they got all the money. So Health Right 360, they get $105, $110 million a year to run their programs in San Francisco. Okay, through Medi-Cal billing, through county funds, through state funds, through federal grants, they get $110 million a year. Okay. Whereas like the Salvation Army, for example, on the other side of that, they run Harbor Light. They get a $5 million grant every year from the feds or from the state, I think from the state probation department to run some beds. So you see the disparity, right? All I have is my voice. I don't have deep pockets like that. I don't have $110 million. There's just really just like a group of us that have said we've had enough and our group is growing and, you know, we formed a coalition outside of San Francisco too, which is growing. And there's people like Michael Schellenberger that are involved now. And I really appreciate his book and raising the issue of how ridiculous our drug treatment plan is here and how we handle the homeless here and how we have allowed open drug scenes to proliferate throughout California, Oregon, Washington, and how there's no end in sight unless we actually start making some hard trade-offs about how we're going to deal with that population in a compassionate way, but also in a way that allows us to have some accountability. Yeah, Schellenberger's book, for those of you who haven't read it, San Francisco, I think is a fantastic illustration of how inconsistent San Francisco and California's policies are with best practices from around the world and from places that we typically associate with very progressive policies, but just have learned the hard way that a sort of laissez-faire anything goes attitude towards open-air drug use is bad for the city. It's bad for the neighbors in those neighbor in those areas, and it's bad for the folks who are suffering from drug addiction as well. So this is a question that we ask all of our guests, and I'm sure you'll have a fascinating response to it. But if San Francisco appointed you drug czar, you had unlimited funds, complete political support. You were able to do essentially whatever you wanted and implement any policy you wanted with respect 
to, let's say, both drugs and homelessness in the city. What is the one thing that you would do that on your first day that you think would have the most impact in solving this problem? If I could wave a magic wand and make it all happen in one day, I would open 10 navigation centers and then I would start enforcing the camping ban that's currently on the books to compel people to, to actually start using those shelters. New York City has a right to shelter ordinance. So all their homeless population has to go into shelter at the end of the night, every single night. We should be doing the same exact thing here in San Francisco. That would make things a whole lot better. A lot of the violence and the bad stuff, the prostitution, the female drug addicts on the street getting pimped out for drugs, all that stuff would come to an end or it would be greatly reduced if we did that. That would be the number one thing. It's just kind of a triage just to kind of assess the depth of the problem. I would start with that. And then from there, you know, we would start talking about building therapeutic communities for people. So abstinence-based therapeutic programs, which are teaching people how to live and develop workforce workforce development skills to re-enter society in a drug-free environment, right? I would expand detox beds. I would spend that part of that or most of that 600 million DPH spends on substance use services on hiring people to manage and building out as many detox beds as possible and then bringing real treatment on demand to folks on the street. Having a van pull up that has a DMV computer in the van where you can actually get someone's identification on the spot get them into that van and get them to a detox within three hours. It's possible. It's possible to actually do those things. And you just do those little things. And then on the enforcement side of it, I would, yeah, we got to hire some more cops, man. <laughs> you have to look, they've already pulled 55 kilos of fentanyl off the streets of the Tenderloin this year. And the year's not even over yet. You got to send a message to the cartels and to the drug dealers that this town is not a friendly town for you to come and sling dope anymore. There have been several legal challenges and resulting court decisions that make it harder for police to enforce sit-lie laws and, and make arrests involving homeless people. What's your view of that civil liberties movement as it relates to the Tenderloin? So there's a court law, a court ruling that came down a couple of years ago, Boise versus Martin, which basically said that if you don't have a place to send someone that's on the street, you can't necessarily enforce a camping ban. And that was, you know, driven by the ACLU. And, you know, this is where it's it screwed up because the ACLU actually, especially the ACLU in Northern California, and I, I really have lost a lot of respect for them, man. I, I used to really respect the ACLU because they really fight for free speech and all that stuff. But now they, they've got this kind of weird, kind of a combination of a socialist slash libertarian stance on homelessness, where it's like, yeah, body autonomy, you know, if you want to sleep on the street and shoot dope in your arm and overdose and die, that's your choice. It's your body. You can do what you want with it. It doesn't matter if a kid's walking by. It doesn't matter if you defecate on the street. It's your body. You can do what you want. Body autonomy. Knock yourself out. And I have a huge, huge problem with that because if that was the case with me, I would be dead right now. That's what I really want to stress to people. I would be dead. I would not be sitting here talking to you in recovery, reunited with my family, all that stuff. None of that would have happened. I would have been in the grave six feet under right now. And so they're wrong on this issue. And the reason they're wrong is because when you're homeless on the street and you're struggling with drug addiction, you have lost your agency at that point. You're like medically indigent at that point. The disease has so much control over you that you can do nothing except sit there all day and shoot dope. So yeah, you need to be intervened upon. So the, the ACLU needs to stand aside, but 
we as a community, as a, as a city, local, state government have to do our part and actually create a space for these individuals to go to. Otherwise, we are truly playing whack-a-mole and just pushing people from block to block to block to block. Now, in the past, our infrastructure that we had in place for that was county jail. You were a vagrant on the street. That's the term they used to use. You get picked up, you go to jail, you dry out. Maybe in the winter, you go to jail because it's cold and you kind of dry out and then maybe go into the, to a program, okay? Now we don't do that anymore. And nobody wants to use the jail anymore, including me, right? That ship has sailed, okay? So we need to use criminal justice or, or law enforcement for the drug dealers. And then we have to create the infrastructure to replace the jail system that we no longer want to use by creating enough shelter beds, by creating therapeutic communities where people can live in congregate housing. We can't build enough housing or we would have done it already in the state of California. And besides, if we wanted to build new housing for every single homeless person in California, it would cost $90 billion to do. <laughs> and the state of California has made it clear and the federal government has made it clear that they are no longer in the business of public housing at that scale. Those projects in Chicago and stuff like that, you're never going to see that again. They're not going to bring that back. It's over. The federal government HUD is in the business of handing out vouchers, you know, Section 8 vouchers so people can rent their own apartments. That's what they primarily do now. And so people like Dean Preston, who's a supervisor in the city and all the Democratic socialists in the city that are screaming for social housing and blocking market rate housing from being built like the Stevenson Street Project and all of that, they're like tilting at windmills. It's like Don Quixote stuff. Because the state of California and the city and county of San Francisco are never going to build 100% social housing because private developers are the ones responsible for building the housing, not the state. And they're just not going to do it if they don't get any return on their investment. That's a sad fact, but it is the fact. So we've talked a lot about policy and I've been struck by how much it seems could be solved with a little nudge here and there to borrow a phrase from some behavioral economists, making it a little bit easier to get into treatment, a little bit harder to continue using drugs on the street. I guess I want to close with a broader philosophical question. You've seen a lot of different sides of this issue. You've experienced homelessness and addiction, and you've also become an advocate for recovery and for residents who live in areas like the Tenderloin. There's always going to be people who have a really cruel attitude towards the homeless. And they just think that we need to get rid of them. It doesn't matter how or, or why. There will also be people who think, you know, zero accountability and endless enablement and tolerance is the answer. It seems that most San Franciscans, though, think the right approach is somewhere in between. So we have kind of this line drawing problem. What do you think society owes to its least fortunate? What, what do we owe the homeless? in order to you know, live our values? You know, it's a great question because the whole issue has been completely politicized. And in San Francisco, if you're in the middle like I am, people think I'm a right winger or a Trumper. I've been called a Trumper, I don't know how many times, right? <laughs> Even though I've been a registered Democrat since 1988, but that's apparently, that's not good enough in San Francisco anymore, so. Right, you're a Dukakis Democrat. That's right, I made that very clear to people. <laughs> I voted for Michael Dukakis in 1988, damn it. So anyway. <laughs> So look, I don't know what we owe anybody. I got a lot of help, but I also had to take a lot of personal responsibility in my recovery. Okay. 
So, yes, I was helped by an organization like the Salvation Army. Yes, the police did end up helping me out in the end. Yes, the courts were lenient with me in the end, so I didn't have to take a felony. So I got help. Those are the kinds of things that I think that we owe the homeless are those types of opportunities. Do we just owe everybody a free house with no preconditions? No, man, we don't. So everyone says that housing is a human right, and then they'll cite the United Nations Secretary General for saying that. But that's not what he said. UN Secretary General said shelter is a human right, not housing is a human right. That's something that the socialists and the progressives took and transformed into housing as a human right. So while I'm all for housing, build all the housing you can. That's where it's like people like Scott Weiner and I agree completely. Build all the housing you can build and, and help lower the rents down and make it easier for people and try to create more job opportunities for people to do more and all that stuff. You have to create a space for people to go and get help. And that's where the community can really step in is that we tell our community leaders, we tell our state and federal leaders to fund drug treatment, fund therapeutic communities, buy into something called a recovery-oriented system of care where you're actually trying to create change, transformative change, not just by stopping using drugs, not just by stopping using drugs, but giving people the counseling that's needed giving them the workforce development that's needed so that they can re-enter society and have a chance, not even guaranteed success, but just have a chance at success because that's what all of us have. Tom Wolf, an incredible story. This has been a fascinating conversation and thank you so much for all the critical work you're doing in the community. And thank you for making the time to chat with us. Thank you guys. Uh, thanks for letting me unleash and just, you know, saying what, what I think needs to be said more in San Francisco and it's not being said enough. So thank you guys. I appreciate it.